it was President Lincoln that established the Department of Agriculture. He called it the People's Department at that time. And it was basically involved with agricultural research and education in its early years. They started the land-grant university systems and eventually the historical black land-grant university systems. All righty. Hey, John. How we doing? You have a good holiday? Oh, yes. Happy New Year and happy yeah, belated birthday. Yeah, thank you. So we're on episode nine today, and Great. I'm really excited for this one because usually we're interviewing people, which is fun and exciting. But today it just gets to be the two of us talking and me getting to pick your brain, which I'm excited about. Very good. I'm looking forward to it. So right here in front of me, I have this paper that you recently published with the University of Missouri called Farm and Food Policies for a Sustainable Future. To our listeners, if you Google Farm and Food Policies for a Sustainable Future by John Eichard, you can find this online. And it's a really comprehensive, really timeline of the history of agriculture in this country. How many years back does this go, John? Well, the farm policy really starts back in the 1930s. I, I really start with the with the establishment of the Department of Agriculture, which was in 1860 sometime. I think it was it was President Lincoln that established the Department of Agriculture. He called it the People's Department at that time, and it was basically involved with agricultural research and education. In its early years, they started the land-grant university systems and eventually the historical black land-grant university systems, the uh, agricultural research service and things like that were started to give public research and education in agriculture. And then it wasn't until the 1930s that we started doing what's currently associated with uh, with farm policy. So today's podcast is really going to be about going through this timeline I'm so lucky to get to do this podcast with you. And I feel like our listeners are so lucky to get to learn from you because you just have so much knowledge and such an interesting background. I would love to just hear what was your inspiration for writing this? I mean, you write so much about the food system. And I think we haven't really even talked about your personal background and kind of how you got into this. I think maybe just to give the listeners a little bit of how you got started in this work right. and how that led up to the culmination of something like this published paper amongst all the different books you've you've written you know what was your inspiration for all of this well i was i was contacted by a, a student from the university of missouri law school um, they were in the process of they have published a journal every year it's kind of like the student journal law journal and they contacted me and asked me if i'd be willing to write a paper on agricultural policy, kind of the history of agricultural policy or agricultural policy as it related to sustainability in particular. And my first response was I responded back to them. I don't know if you're aware of my background. I'm not sure that you want me to write an article about agricultural sustainability because the University of Missouri, as other land-grant universities are, has been a big supporter of industrial agriculture. And I pointed out to them, you know, I'd been a consistent critic of industrial agriculture, and I thought we needed to have major changes in agricultural policy. I wanted to make sure they didn't, you know, weren't inviting me to write something they wouldn't be pleased with. Well, they told me that the reason they contacted me is because they were aware of the, my background, that I'd started off as a 
traditional agricultural economist, kind of a supporter and promoter of industrial agriculture. And then in the 19, late 1980s, I'd become involved in the sustainable agriculture movement. And I'd spent the last 11 years of my 30-year academic career at the University of Missouri. So the students there were were aware that I was a critic, and that's the reason they wanted me to to give a a, a different perspective on agricultural policy, and specifically as to how is it related to sustainability. So, so I told them, okay, if that's what you want me to do, then I'll write the write the article. And I I thought uh, I, I'd go through kind of the the transition in agricultural policy, going back to the beginning of the of the farm bills back in the 1930s. Because if you, I think back to it, I've lived through most of the farm bills. I was born in 1939, so the original legislation on which farm policy is based was was implemented in 1938. First farm bill was 33, but that was declared unconstitutional, and then the original farm legislation was in 1938. So I was born in 1939. So, and much of my professional career has been doing the transition of agricultural policies from supporting independent family farms to supporting what I call the industrialization of agriculture. So that in a nutshell is kind of my history of it. What was it like being a teacher at a school that was so focused on industrial agriculture? Like, was your class popular because they didn't offer much of that or people kind of looked at you like you were crazy? Well, I was working primarily in in research and extension at that time. Um, Most of our research was done on contract and grant work. Um, but we were working through the extension program. So we run into the same kind of obstacles. Um, I was able to recruit a a core of extension workers, field extension workers at the University of Missouri who were really uh, thinking the same way I was. They were, they were not pleased with what industrial agriculture was doing for family farms and rural communities. And so they were anxious to, you know, find some leadership in, a, in sustainable agriculture that was promoting an alternative. But but we were in a very distinct minority there, and I was a very distinct minority within the campus of the University of Missouri where I was located. We There would be, you know, myself and maybe a couple of other people in agricultural economics, a couple of people in agronomy, a couple of people in animal science or whatever. But, you know, we were a, a minority in all the departments. So it was really a challenge during those years at the University of Missouri to to try to fund and support a credible, sustainable agriculture program that was really what it is and what it continues to be is a challenge to the kind of traditional uh, university, uh, land-grant university approach to supporting industrial agricultural technologies. And now that you've had such a prolific career, does the university ever give you credit or awards or do they still... Well, it depends. It depends on who you talk to. Which department? <laughs> <laughs> the law students at the University of Missouri invited me to write a paper. I get invited to do things there with the University of Missouri occasionally, but uh, there's other other areas within the university that are very uncomfortable. I think with my professional emeritus professor emeritus status and the idea that I continue to write and post on my you know, on my websites and continue to write articles that are critical of uh, industrial agriculture. Uh, for example, in 2014, I think it was, the United Nations contacted me, a similar United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, asked me to write uh, the regional, international regional paper, which included uh, North America, South America, I mean, uh, North uh, Mexico and, and Canada and the United States, 
on for the International Year of Family Farms. And I was skeptical when they contacted me and said, uh, you know, are you sure you, you want me to write my perspective on family farming and what's happened to it and the status of it? And they said, yes, we contact you because we want you to write about that. But but, you know, those those kind of things, there are there's a significant segment out here uh, within the university system and elsewhere uh, that realizes that we have fundamental problems with industrial agriculture and are willing to support people like me that are talking about alternatives, positive alternatives for the future. Yeah, you can find your people anywhere. And I think you ended up, you quoted someone from the UN, the former Oliver Deschuter in your paper, right. cited him somewhere. Yep. And he was from, is the former food and ag reporter of the UN. Yeah, there's a you have international panel of experts on uh, sustainability and food uh, that's done some really good work under the auspices of the UN. I quote them in, in a lot of my papers. It really is it's coming on and, and laying out a, a very credible scientific-based uh, critique of industrial agriculture and pointing out that while it's had major gains in terms of productivity and economic efficiency and this sort of thing, that is creating all sorts of ecological and social problems and it's not meeting the needs of people that need it most in other countries or even in this country. And mm -hmm. and talk about, you know, the need to change agricultural policies and shift from supporting this industrial model of agriculture, supporting what they call agroecology, which is a a diversified system of agriculture that's really about sustainability. It's about integrating agricultural systems with the natural environment and seeing the, the land and the soil and the plants and the animals and the people as all part of one kind of ecosystem, an agro-ecosystem, and having to manage the system as a whole rather than just focus on individual technologies or individual methodologies as industrial agriculture does. Yeah, it's cool to see these international bodies talking about agroecology. Right. So in the start of this paper, you know, it seems like things are going pretty well in terms of U.S. farm policies when it starts out. Not that the state of the economy was going well, right. because this was in the height of the Great Depression, right? right. But um, you kind of talk about, okay, the initial U.S. farm policies kind of started off with really good intentions. And right. would you say they were working well when this was starting? Well, I, I don't know how well they were working. I don't think anybody would argue that agriculture of the 30s or 40s was actually sustainable, but I think government policies were supporting the right kind of things in terms of sustainability. And I never really thought about policies with respect to sustainability back in that period of time until I started to write the paper. And then I began to, to really dig into the history of agriculture policies. I can see that it, those were really policies for agricultural sustainability. Because when they started out in 1933, when they passed the original Farm Bill, it was a response to the Great Depression. And, and it was really focused on supporting farm family incomes as a way of supporting the economy overall. Uh, farmers made up about 25% of the population. The majority of the, the people lived in rural areas and were really dependent upon farming. And so by supporting the incomes then of family farms, then they were actually you know, supporting people that were out there to take care of the land. And and the idea was, is if we, during the Great Depression, you had a lot of people that were being forced off the farms and into the soup lines and where there wasn't employment, but they were losing their farms. And the idea was, well, if we all these family farmers are forced off the farms, then we're not going to have anybody to produce food when the economy, if we can get the economy going again. So it was about food security and supporting family farmers. And then when the original farm bill that was 
promoted that talked about supporting prices at parity levels that would give farm families income on at par at parity with non-farm families. Then when that bill was passed, it was declared unconstitutional. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that it had a tax in it that was going to tax uh, agricultural processors to support the cost of the bill. But the, the main thing was it's, it said that it wasn't the business of the federal government to be involved in setting farm prices and farm policy and limiting farm production. They said if that was to be done, it had to be done at the state level and not at the federal level. So they said basically that's not the responsibility of the federal government. So they came back then. In, and after it was declared unconstitutional in 1936, they came back in 1938. And what they did then is they basically added those same provisions of supporting family farms. They added that as an amendment to a conservation, a soil conservation bill that had been passed in 1936. And the conservation bill clearly focused on on conserving and maintaining soil, but the other natural resources as a means of maintaining the long run agricultural productivity of agriculture and the food security of the country. So they brought in the ecological dimension and they really tied uh, support for supporting family farms in the economic dimension then became tied to supporting the natural or protecting natural resources and conserving soil and things of this nature. So at that point, it had the ecological, social and economic dimensions that identified it as a national, not a state responsibility, but as a national responsibility and then began to shape farm policy then to support that those multiple objectives of soil and resource conservation, supporting family farms and rural communities and doing it by supporting economic viability to make sure that those systems continue to function. And would the Soil Conservation Act, would that have happened without the Dust Bowl? Was this purely a response to the Dust Bowl? Well, I think that's what brought it to public attention. A lot of times you have to have something almost a disaster happen to get Congress to respond. But it was the Dust Bowl that that passed the conservation bill. There's a story about uh, Congress was in session in Washington at the time, and they were debating this bill in Washington in Congress. And, and there was a big dust storm came in from the West and the dust made it all the way to Washington, DC. And so they started seeing the dust filter into the, the chambers in Washington and that tipped the balance. So I guess it had to get that bad, but, but anyway, so it was, there was a clear understanding that protecting natural resources and natural environment is is a legitimate public mandate to be uh, responsibility of the federal government. And then the Farm Bill then of 1938 uh, saw that in order to protect the natural resources, soil conservation and things of this nature, and it clearly says that in the legislation, in order to be able to carry this out, then the family farmers have to be able to make a decent living and have to be able to support rural communities and the quality of life in rural areas. So so that that basically tied the ecological, social and economic dimensions of sustainability altogether into farm policy. And that that basic philosophy of policy really continued up until the late 1960s, early 1970s. It's so important to return to the history and see what's possible and what's happened before, because I think for people in my generation, we've only lived through industrial agriculture. And it seems absurd that the be a Soil Conservation Act and the country would be coming together to do these conservation acts and care about soil health, because now it seems something that's really um, 
doesn't feel very possible, especially with today's polarized climate. I mean, we'll and we'll get to that in a little bit. I, I would love to hear a bit later, like what you think is possible, kind of going forward. Right. So, when you say family farm incomes, this was supporting actual people's income as opposed to paying for what they were producing, or did, were were they still paying them based on how much that they were producing? Well, it, it it's really was really the intent was really both. It, the intent was, as it makes clear in the legislation, is to support the the farm families that were out here so that they could stay on on the land. But but the farm families then, as like farmers like now, uh, they're very uncomfortable getting direct payments from the government. They they tell you they want to get they want to get their returns out of the marketplace. They don't want to have to go to the mailbox to pick up a check to make it profitable for them to farm. And so the, the feeling was at least as strong, if not more so back then. And so they didn't want direct payments from the government to the families. And so what they agreed to is they said, okay, we'll set the price of, of basic farm commodities at, at price levels that will ensure a family income for farm families that's on par or at parity with non-farm families. Now, at the beginning of this, and I, I didn't write this into the paper, but as I think about it more over time, it, even in, in that situation, even though it was support, supporting family farm incomes, by by linking it to prices of the commodities as opposed to actually supporting the family incomes in some way, as I've, you and I have proposed doing it through an insurance of income insurance program, but by setting a commodity prices, it said, okay, that has to be commodity prices for some sort of average farm family with average production of certain commodities in order to translate those farm, those commodity prices into family incomes. So if a family was operating a bigger farm with higher levels of production, they're obviously going to get more money because they're producing more crops at the same price. And the, and the fam, farmers then with with less crops or the smaller farming operations that are selling less into the into the markets, they're going to get a, a smaller return to their families because they're not producing as much commodities. And we still have a lot of that involved in agricultural policies today. So even though the intent was to support family incomes, it was it was a very sort of blunt instrument. It wasn't very uh, equitable in terms of, of how it benefited smaller farmers relative to larger farmers at that time by focusing on prices rather than just saying we're going to support family incomes. What if they were using some of their land to just conserve? Were they getting paid to to practice conservation like we see now? Yeah, at that, at that time, the, uh, the, the payments then, the parity prices, in order to qualify for parity prices, then there were limits on production in order to keep prices up at parity levels, the market prices up at parity levels. There were limits on production. And in order to qualify, you had to have limits on production. But com combined with the limits on the production of the commodities, then when you had to implement conservation practices because it was part of the it was part of the conservation bill, you know, that was all part of the farm bill that you had to comply with these conservation practices in order to qualify for payments under the the farm. It's price support provisions. So it, it was linked together at that time. And various farm policies since then have been linked to, uh, you know, doing the same thing. We had uh, uh, swamp buster, sod buster programs in, uh, I think it was 1990s, maybe late 80s, 1990s, that you couldn't go out and take uh, land out of, or that land hadn't been production. You couldn't bring it into production. You couldn't bring swamp land into production, things like that. 
if you're going to get government payments. So, and then we had conservation compliance in the 80s and 90s, which meant that you had to comply with certain levels of, of soil conservation in order to qualify for government payments. So historically, there has been a, a link between the two. Now that link, you know, we can talk about it later, but that link has largely been broken because uh, today, most of the government payments go through crop insurance or whole farm revenue insurance, and there's no link there between soil conservation or resource conservation or anything else in receiving those kind of payments or receiving the insurance, the subsidized insurance. Right. And it's few and far between that farmers are getting money to do right. regenerative practices, even though they're, they're, maybe it's getting more popular now. It's still like such right. a minority of agriculture. There are some programs like conservation security program and things like that that pay for it. But anyway. So what happened with parity? And, and if you're listening and this is the first time you've heard parity, maybe you can explain it, John. But it, it really is the, the fair price, what, based on the market at the time? Well, what they did is they supported prices by limiting production so that prices would rise to the parity levels. Or, and then over time, it got to where they would make up the difference between the parity price and whatever the market price was. But, but anyway, o over time, what happened is, as we had the new agricultural technologies come in, pr primarily after World War II, but we've had in production increasing technologies even going back in early in the 40s. But as we got farm tractors and move away from horses to tractors and things like that, but the new technologies then allowed each farmer to produce more, to you know, farm more acres, produce more bushels of crops or produce larger amounts of livestock, whether dairy or whatever. So as as each farm could produce more, if you if you're setting a price at a at a parity price level, as you increase production, then that means the total family income is going to increase over and above what it was in that base period of, of 1908, 1914, where the parity prices were set. So yeah, and why why those why that period? Well, why 1908, they, 1909 to nineteen fourteen? That's that's part of supporting incomes again at parity. That was a period of time when farm incomes, just because of the overall supply and demand situation, agricultural production relative to consumer demand that farm prices were at a level that on average give farm families uh, income equal to non-farm families. And so that was chosen because that was a period when there was parity income without any government price supports. And so that's what they pegged it to there. But over time then, as, as the production per farm increased because of mechanization, movement from horses to tractors and various other things and moving electricity onto more farms and things like this, then it meant if you set prices at parity prices, which would give you an equal farm income back in 1908 to, 19, to 1914, then in the 1940s and 50s, then that would be a, a higher income. Farm family incomes were getting a, would be getting a significantly higher income than farm families would than non-farm families. And so what the Department of Agriculture began to do then is they would adjust the prices that which they would support at, at some percent of parity, rather than supporting 100% of parity, those prices, they would back it off and say, okay, we'll support maybe 80% of parity because there's been an increase in farm size that would make 80% of parity now be an income equal to, for farmers equal to non-farm families. So so they, they just begin to adjust the program, even though they remained kind of linked to parity for some period of time after that, they began to adjust it for the fact that we were 
starting the process of industrializing agriculture, moving to larger, specialized, standardized, mechanized, routinized farms that where farmers could farm larger farms, produce more than they could back in the earlier periods of time. And what do you think about all of that? Do you think that was a profound mistake? Well, I, I think I think it was in, inevitable when we had the new technologies, particularly after World War II with the new chemical technologies, uh, in particular, the uh, the munitions technologies that came out, uh, making munitions is a lot like making nitrogen fertilizer. So that, that's what made nitrogen fertilizer much, much cheaper. Even now they use, what, ammonia nitrate as an explosive. You know, if you trigger it, it's been used by terrorists and various other things. So... So they used the technologies they developed it through the war then to fix nitrogen, take nitrogen from the air and fix it. And they turn it into cheap nitrogen fertilizer, which really was revolutionary in terms of moving away from integrated crop and livestock systems, crop rotations and things of that nature, which had always been necessary to maintain the fertility of the soil. And a big part of that was trying to fix nitrogen in the soil so it would feed the crops. And so... So that was inevitable when you had the cheaper nitrogen fertilizer. And then also you had uh, more affordable, affordable farm tractors. Um, we got our first farm tractor, I think, in oh, 1954, 55, something like that on the farm. But up to then, you know, farm tractors hadn't been affordable. What they did is they took the factories and the technologies they'd used to produce tanks and jeeps and they use those same technologies to produce tractors, and that reduced the cost of tractors to, to farmers. And then, of course, the uh, chemical warfare technologies used to produce pesticides. And so all of these things made it possible then for farmers then to specialize, standardize, move into larger farms. And I think part of that was inevitable just in adopting the technologies. And I think in the in the early stages, during the early period of time that I was involved in it, actually on the farm, it actually improved the quality of life on farms and the quality of life in rural communities. It took a lot of the drudgery out of farming and the really hard work. And it allowed farmers like on our family to, to make more money during that period of time and to, you know, kind of move out of poverty. I want to, people to feel sorry for me, but I mean, when I was small, we, we were poor. And as the farming systems improved and technology systems improved, then we, you know, we had a better quality of life. But I think the the problem was, is, is, is not even in, in the initial government programs that, that supported that transition. And we can talk more about the nature of those programs. It wasn't in the original intent was to make agriculture sort of kind of more efficient and help farmers do that. The problem was is is when it became evident that those policies weren't achieving what they were intended to do, weren't making it, you know, weren't creating more economically viable family farms, economically viable rural communities, and wasn't really feeding people that couldn't afford to eat before and things of that nature. When it become apparent that those policies weren't doing the things they were intended to do, the fact that we've continued to support them for the past 50, 60 years, I think that's the mistake. It seemed like people at the time were fine seeing so many people moving away from agriculture. And now it's this crisis that we're in where the you know, average age of the farmer is over 60 and everyone's worried that you know, they're not going to pass the farm off to their children. We're not going to have farmers. But at the time, I mean, I'm just looking at some of these stats from your paper. During that period you were talking about during industrialization and then World War II and following that, and you, you say 
agricultural industrialization has resulted in chronically recurring periods of excess supplies and depressed prices for farm commodities. Farm employment in the U.S. dropped by nearly 25% during the 1950s as excess supplies and depressed prices forced 1.7 million farmers off their farms. Um, and and then in the nine in, in the early 1960s, this committee for economic development, um, it, it it seemed like they were okay with people moving away from sure. agriculture. Yeah. Where people weren't freaking out that there were less farmers, it was seen as almost like a good thing, as a, a sign of well, prosperity. Well, part of part of that was during the period of time I was talking about. There were a lot of people in, in agriculture at that time that they were farming because they didn't have any other opportunities. They didn't know what else to do during that time. And so the rest of the economy was growing then. And and so even though there were people leaving the farm, the people that were left, the, the farm communities were more economically viable than they were before. And the, the way of farm life was better. There wasn't as much really hard physical labor as there was before. And so even though they were losing farmers during that time, and it was depressing rural communities, that's what I labeled in the paper I talked about. At the end, it was called the farm problem. We're losing so many people from rural communities. But that was the main the main concern. But this committee that they, that they pulled together, and it was this same uh, Committee on Economic Development that had had been claimed responsibility anything anyway for things like the Marshall Plan that rebuilt uh, Europe after World War II and the, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and a whole range of things like that. They were kind of a think tank on that. And so they addressed the, what they called the farm program. And, and they pointed out that even though we lost farmers in the 1950s, their whole focus was on the economic efficiency of agriculture. And they said, Actually, farmers aren't leaving fast enough. They said the farms need to be bigger. They need to be fewer if we're going to get the most efficient use of the rural resources in terms of moving toward this industrial model of agriculture. And and their their vision prevailed, prevailed. And so we continue to lose farms during the 1960s. And then in the 1970s is when you really had a major shift in farm policies, which exacerbated the, the problem issue even more. So it was one of those things that, that kind of started off and in the beginning, it, it certainly wasn't apparent that this was uh, the wrong way to go in many cases. Uh, it was just a, a natural process of industrializing the whole economy and things of that nature. And there were basically good paying jobs relative to what we were people making good paying jobs then in the cities and the growing manufacturing sector and things of this nature. A lot of people left the community like my brother was one of them and Others that left the community, the farming community, and went to work in the factories and places, you know, in, in Chicago and ended up in Joliet and various other places and made a good living and didn't want to be on the farm. But at some point, it, it began to push people off the farm that didn't want to leave the farm, and it began to really have a negative effect on rural communities. But government policies just ex accelerated that whole process, even though it was no longer beneficial. So there are some people who were be happy to leave the farm and there were others yeah. that were desperately trying to hold on to their land. And I, I think it's important to state these stats and this history is primarily talking about white farmers. I mean, we're not Good. even talking about black farmers and other farmers of color that have been forcibly removed from their land. Like I think in 1910, one in seven farmers were African-American. And over the next century, 98% of right. black farmers were dispossessed. So these 
stats are even greater for farmers yeah. of color. I'd say even the policies that were in place, as we talked about a while ago, parity prices and things like that, most of the black farmers was started off as small farmers. You know, they started off with very little, if any, land. So they they would have received very little benefit from the government programs, even at the, the parity price levels that were set, because they simply didn't have that much, that many commodities to to put into the market. And then in many cases, I'm sure, I, you know, just based on the history of USDA that, and the, the, particularly at the state level, the way the programs are administered, uh, it's doubtful that they even had access to the, uh, to the benefits that were available to white farmers under the USDA program. So, uh, you know, if you, if we want to dig back to the early history of agriculture, we can't find a whole lot positive to, to say about the land we took away from the Native American people here and and the treatment of black farmers, minority farmers, Japanese farmers in California during World War II and a lot of other things. And so we're just dealing with one part of the agricultural problem, one part of the problem of the country. So then you're talking about the 1970s, the 1980s. So is this Earl Butts? That's yeah. when it really got this problem really got extreme. Earl Butts was an economist at Purdue University and, and the economics, agricultural econ economist, you know, which I was during that period of time, I was aware of Earl Butts was well known. Butts had a, a textbook that was widely used by agricultural economists. But, but, but you guys but, never had any debates or anything? <laughs> I, I've never I've never met him personally, but he was a little little older than I was. He was, you know, I was a new PhD at the time that he was at the I got my PhD in nineteen seventy, so that was during the early part of that time. But anyway, a, a lot of the agriculture economists at that time were promoting these same these same programs because they were focusing on the economic efficiency of agriculture. And as I say in the paper, you know, the focus of farm policy shifted from supporting family farms, which had never been just a farm business. Farming was a way of life, and it was recognized in farm policy, and it shifted to supporting farmers as a business. And so agricultural economists would see this as an opportunity. Well, we understand the economics of agriculture and how to increase the efficiency of agriculture, specialized, standardized, mechanized, that sort of thing. And so agricultural economists were very supportive of these policies because it was focusing on economic efficiency. And so Earl Butts was kind of the most prominent of those. And so when he became secretary of agriculture, then he was in a position to really promote and push those policies through at the federal level, more so than had been able to do during the 1960s when it was, you know, various kind of differences of opinion about where agriculture should go. And so that's when the real change were made. And and then that led up to when they just went to this, open up the free market, farm fence row to fence row, get bigger, get out, we're going to feed the world, that whole mentality of the 70s. And when they opened up the international markets during the 1970s, primarily with a lot of uh, foreign loans to countries, development loans, they ended up importing a lot of agricultural products. We had a period of, of increasing agricultural prices, increasing production through that whole period of the 1970s. But we also had big increases in input costs, fertilizer costs, fuel costs, everything went up because you're trying to expand production. And then we got into the 1980s, and then that was the farm financial crisis. The export market dried up. 
commodity prices fell and farmers were caught with huge debts and high interest rates. But you asked the question other before about whether farmers wanted to leave or we talked before about some farmers wanted to leave the farm. It became clear in the 1980s the farmers that were leaving didn't want to leave. Farmers were committing suicide. The farms were going into foreclosure, bankruptcy. They wouldn't give up. At that point, it should have been clear to anybody that this is no longer about sort of a, a, a peaceful, natural transition of agriculture to industrial agriculture with fewer larger farms. This is something that's being forced upon farmers and forced upon rural communities. And that's when it became apparent to me that the policies that I'd been supporting, you know, as an agricultural economist from a purely economic standpoint, that those policies weren't working. They weren't good for those farmers that were being forced out of business. It wasn't good for rural communities that were withering and dying with storefronts boarded up because they depended on those farm families for not just economically, but socially and culturally. And then it, it wasn't good for the land because we're farming fence row to fence row and tear out the fence rows and and soil conservation. I mean, soil erosion was just rampant across the country. And so it was clear by the 1980s that those policies were clearly a failure, but we continue to support them now, what, 40 years later. So 40 years later, we're seeing super weeds, super bugs, right. all these problems with monoculture, insect apocalypse, factory farms, the climate impacts and the human health impacts from that. We got climate change and we're seeing, you know, floods and droughts and all of these things. And it's, less government support for these good sustainable policies right. than we've seen back when it started. So why is that? We're in a, a larger crisis than we've been in, in terms of climate. And yet we're seeing, you know, and there are, you know, some, there's some programs paying farmers to do right. cover cropping and, you know, doing this and that, but it seems like they're the boutique, they're alternatives to the, right. to the main model here. And, why is that when before in the 1930s, we had a, a main model that looked different and, right. and, and yeah, wh why is that happening now? Well, I, I think what you failed to anticipate is things going on in the larger economy as well. But in the 1980s, they basically quit enforcing antitrust policies, which meant rather than the government being responsible to make sure that there's a large number of people competing in, in all the markets, including agricultural markets and responsible for you know, a large number of meat packers and poultry processors and vegetable processors and things of that nature. So you have competition, not only were they allowing increased industrialization of agriculture, but basically they took the re restraints off of that. And so you saw the agriculture processors and retailers then move to where they become larger and, and became fewer as they forced each other out of business, just like they were doing on, at the farm level. Well, in the process then of, of allowing those large operations to become larger, they gain not only economic power, the power to take profits out of the market rather than pay it to producers or to give it to consumers in terms of lower prices or higher farm prices. They gain the power not only to retain the profits, but they gain political power to, to shape and to enforce, uh, you know, put pressure on politicians to pass agricultural policies basically that continue to support this industrial agriculture model. And as I point out in the paper, even though this this industrial model is very economically efficient, it, it's it's also very risky. 
if you go to a large scale operation with large upfront investments, particularly in agriculture, where you have production risk of crop failures due to disease and droughts and floods and and livestock diseases and things of that nature, it's a very risky operation when you go to a large scale specialized operation instead of the smaller diversified operations. And so basically government policy since the 1970s has been about getting the taxpayers to absorb the risk of this large industrial agriculture. We really saw that during the, the pandemic in 2020 and when the whole food system basically was about to shut down, the government come in and basically force people to go to work in unhealthy working environments just to keep the system running. But, and we've seen it in deficiency I and mean, we've seen it in disaster payments year after year. We see it in the crop insurance, the big subsidies that are required for crop insurance and things of this nature. But that they have the political clout, industrial agriculture, in combination with the corporate agri-food system, has the political power to continue to put these policies in place to prop up this failed system of industrial agriculture, in spite of the fact that it's causing all of the environmental problems and the social problems and and you know quality of life problems, public health problems, and things of this nature that are clearly associated with the industrialization of agriculture. It persists now mainly because of political power rather than any economic efficiency even. I, I, I would argue that if we had maintained the competitiveness of agricultural markets and agriculture processing and distribution, we might well have high quality, much higher quality food today that was produced in more ecologically sound and socially responsible ways at even cheaper prices than we have in the supermarkets today, because we would have focused our research and technology on regenerative, resilient, uh, resourceful kind of farming methods, rather than just focusing myopically on economic efficiency in terms of the production process. And that's, that, that's what we need to do to change farm policies is we need to we need to change from just supporting agriculture and farms as a farm business to, to supporting the whole of agriculture for the good, the public good, the good of society. That's what government programs are supposed to do, to support the common good. Programs that are that allow farmers that are willing to produce, to take care of the land, to be good neighbors, to be responsible members of community, and to produce good food for society as a whole, that those are the farmers that we need to be absorbing the risk of agriculture for and the risk of transition for, rather than to continue to support the failed system that we have today. This trend that you're talking about of corporations buying politicians and you know lobbying them for the types of bills they want to see or they want blocked, it's really the same trend that happened with land-grant universities too, where at one time they were funded by the government and then they were running out of money and, and now yep. a lot of them rely on Monsanto and Syngenta and DuPont right. and right. seed and chemical companies. And then that's the type of research that the university is producing. And that's right. when the extension agents go out and those are the people helping the farmers. And they're really, the knowledge that they have is really about right. how to use these genetically modified seeds and how to spray these synthetic chemicals right. and fertilizers. Yeah, and that was a process that began back in the 60s and 70s, the period as I was talking about, and the whole shift was up to then. Agriculture extension research was about supporting independent family farms, research that worked on independent family farms. And then we shifted over, and over time it was proclaimed that what we are is a is a 
is a technology research and, and extension or development programs. That's that's what it was all about. The the university system research was about developing basically industrial agricultural technologies and the extension and education program was about extending this information out to farmers. Technology development, technology transfer, that was what extension was. Technology transfer is what education was. That's what you were teaching the students. So rather than, you know, supporting whole family farms from the standpoint of, of taking care of the land, the environment, and being re responsible members of communities as it was. You know, we had family economics programs and things of that nature. It shifted over to just being technology development, technology transfer, and that's what they're continuing to do today. And as you said, you know, they depend more and more on outside funding, like the University of Missouri claims when I came there in the 19, early 1990s or late 1980s, um, it was, you know, we still talked about it as being a public university, a public institution. By the time I left there, the official language has shifted to it. It's a publicly supported institution. Mm. It's no longer a public institution, but basically, as you explained, uh, the, the industry funds are kind of leveraging uh, public funds. And so they say, okay, now it's a partnership. We've got a partnership with the industry. And so we have to focus on things that can be commercialized and things of that nature. But the most important thing is what I hinted at a while ago is, is the political influence that these large agribusiness firms have on state legislatures. So the, the colleges within or the land-grant universities within states they have to depend on those state legislatures for their public funding. And if they don't please the corporate sector in terms of the kind of research and education programs, then their public funding is threatened as well as their private funding. So what about overturning Citizens United? Would that impact this political influence on the state legislature? I think it would be a positive influence to move in that direction. Their the solution is that you have to take money out of the political process or as to the to the extent that you possibly can is to remove the influence because I used to 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 tell people you know um, a public university is is like you go to a public university is like going into a voting booth you know that's where everybody has an equal say everybody has an equal vote I said if if you go into Walmart and you've got a hundred dollars and I've got ten then you get to buy ten times as much stuff as I do but if you go into a, a voting booth and you've got a hundred dollars and I've got 10, we both still have one vote. And I would, would say that when you go to a public institution, a public university or, or a government office of any kind, it, it's like going into a voting booth. We all have an equal right to be there and we all should have an equal say in the programs that are carried out, regardless of how much money we have, regardless of what our economic influence is. And I think it's, it's up to the people ultimately to understand that they have a basic right to determine what's done with public monies, whether we're talking about the farm bill or whether we're talking about uh, universities, public universities or whatever. And you need to go into the dean's office or the director of extensions office and you need to have say, I've got as much say about what we ought to be doing with these public funds as the president of Monsanto has, the president of Cargill or or any other uh, lobbyist for any other corporate organization has, because uh, this is our institution, this is our place. And, you know, what you say is it's it's a problem all across government, uh, because the large corporations and the people with a lot of money have a lot more influence than the rest of us do uh, that just have a vote.
students on university campuses really need to be active around this. And you can do Freedom of Information Act requests. We actually would teach that to students, you know, how to kind of uncover where the money is coming from at your school and what it's going towards and, you know, where professors were getting their grants from. And at the government level, what other way is there to get money out of politics? Wouldn't Citizens United kind of be the best way to do that to prevent I think so. And, and there are movements going in this direction. But the, the, the best, best approach is to, to say that corporations not being real people have no right to participate in the political process. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's in one language, or I don't know what language you put that in, but that's what we have to say. We need to recognize that a, that a corporation, particularly a publicly held corporation, has no capacity uh, for having social doing things that are socially responsible or ethical. And the reason I say that is because a large public held institution may have their shareholders. They've got to answer to the shareholders. Shareholders may be perfectly good people with strong social and ethical values, but the, the management of the corporation has a responsibility to serve the common interest of the shareholders. And the common interest of the shareholders, the only thing they have in common, not their social values, ethical values, those are different because they're all over the globe, all different ages. Some of them may even own stocks for just a short period of time, a day, a week, or a few minutes. The only thing that they have value in, in common is a desire to increase the value of their investment in that company. And so that large publicly held corporation becomes a purely economic entity. Its decisions are going to be driven by increasing the economic value of the stock or the dividends or the return on investment in that company. And it's not going to give priority at any time to the social values that are important to society as a whole or the ethical values that underlie kind of the foundational constitution uh, integrity of the whole country. And so, uh, you know, corporations are non-humans and they have no right to participate in the political process. And that's basically what Citizens United said, that they are have the same right as everyone else. And somehow or other, we have to we have to change that at the federal level. Then it would do a lot to begin, begin to change things all the way down through the system. Well, we are nearing the end. So to finish off, you're in the hallway. You see Tom Vilsack. You have a couple minutes to tell him about your plan. What would you say to him? What what would be your plan to kind of get us back on the right track or or get us on a on a new track? I would say we need another fundamental shift in agricultural policy similar to what we had in the 1960s, not particularly the 1970s. Those policies that were put in place in that time were well intended. That they thought that improving the efficiency of agriculture would actually improve the overall well-being of society, economically, ecologically, socially straight across the board, but it simply didn't work. And and rather to be maintained in this state of denial and, and give in to the corporate influence to maintain a failed system, there needs to be another fundamental transformation in the, the public policies of this country. I would, would tell him and inform him that I, I know this with certainty, that our our knowledge, our technical knowledge, and our our scientific knowledge of how to farm sustainably, regenerative, resilient, resourcefully, this further advanced today than our knowledge of industrial agriculture was in the 1960s. What tipped the balance back in the 1960s and 70s was the change in public policy. That's what made the change inevitable. All we need to do now is have a change in public policy and farm policy 
and we can implement a fundamental transformation in agriculture that's just as just as great and just as dramatic as the transformation from family farms to industrial agriculture, except it's going to be from industrial to sustainable agriculture for the future. Bam, mic drop. <laughs> well, I hope that you get the chance to tell him that one day. And at the end, you cite our work that we wrote together, right? right? Our memo. Right. So me and John, which is how we got connected, wrote a regenerative ag policy memo or, or list of recommendations to do the type of switch that that John is talking about. And that uh, he mentions that in this Farm and Food Policies for a Sustainable Future article. You can also find it on Data for Progress's website, the, the list of recommendations that we made, but it's all in there. And I'm sure we'll keep talking about it in these right. in these further episodes. But really it's it's all here. Like what we it's really a return to the farm philosophy that we were talking about in the earlier times. It's about supporting family farms so that they can take care of the land, be good, responsible members of the community and farm regenerative, regenerate the soil, have resilient farming operations, diverse farming operations to, to make it possible for those operations to, to, you know, to be successful out here. And if we'd simply, what we really proposed is transitioning farm programs from supporting the large scale industrial commodity producers to making it possible just to just absorbing the risk that are involved of transitioning from or beginning farmings within um, more sustainable farming systems phasing out of crop insurance returning yeah. to yeah and, and focusing on on supporting farm families as opposed to supporting co agricultural commodities that's that's the focus that was the original intent is try to make it possible for farmers to farm in a way that's good for society as a whole and that's really what we're talking about here and the payments need to be focused on the people as opposed to production and profits awesome well Thank you so much to our listeners. Thank you, John, so much. And, you know, if, if you're listening and you have further questions, uh, reach out to John on his website, right. John Eichard. Um, his email is there and we can address these questions in our next episode. Yeah. So Yeah, we can talk more about farm policies in the future. As we talk to other people, we can work in more about the policies that we proposed. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, everyone, and hope you enjoyed this episode.